Hello, welcome to my podcast, A Parallel, The Chinese Culture Revolution and the French Revolution. This is episode 11, Inventing the End. Last time, in the last episode, I spoke a little more in depth about the wars in or of the Vendée region of France. It was about the French countryside and the insurrections and counter-revolutions that gripped that nation. Queen Marie Antoinette had been executed The reign of terror was ushered in. President Nixon visited the People's Republic of China, and I discussed the impact of that visit. In this episode, I want to talk about the fall of the Jacobins in France. The reign of terror ends I'll mention the new French Constitution of 1795 and the introduction to the directory, the executive body of France. I'll also get into China's continued descent into famine and starvation and how the citizens found ways to survive through the Cultural Revolution. As I have been doing, Throughout this podcast series, I'd like to include a quote. And this time the quote is from Alex de Tocqueville. Quote, in a revolution, as in a novel, the most difficult part is to invent the end. End of quote. The execution of Maximilien Robespierre clearly marked a rejection of the form of government that the Jacobins had been driving in France. The vacancies in the leadership left by the executions and deaths of three of the members of the Committee of Public Safety were never replaced. Indeed, the Assembly chose not to replace them. And that was a deliberate decision that something was afoot. At that time, the Assembly decided that a quarter of the remaining members of the Committee of Public Safety would retire each month. Another indication that the political and revolutionary attitude had changed were the number of executions. In August of the year 1794, only six people were guillotined in Paris, and there were only 40 more over the remainder of the year 1794. The reign of terror had collapsed. Within one month following Robespierre's execution, the main institutions of terror and revolutionary government had been taken down. 
no longer needed. Quickly, the attitude turned anti-Jacobin. The hunter was now the prey. The harvest of the year 1794 was very bad, and that was followed by an exceptionally cold winter. Food shortages in France began to appear again. By early 1795, France was once again in the clutches of hunger and frozen conditions, making the situation even worse. Politically, it became dangerous for anyone to publicly display anything associated with the now-disgraced Jacobins. In February 1795, the Assembly did away with the state-supported churches and declared, from henceforth, the freedom of religion. This religious effort, you may recall, had a little to do with bringing peace to the Vendée region. As 1795 continued, there were some signs of a resurgence of the old monarchy. Some thought the ten-year-old son of Louis XVI might make an acceptable king. But he died in June of that year. His death led the Count of Provence, then exiled in Verona, Italy, to claim that he was Louis XVIII and declared that he would return to France and reinstitute the estates general. At the end of the last episode, I began to talk about the pervasive fear, apathy, and shortages that fell over China in 1972. These conditions persisted and the latter part of the Cultural Revolution is known for these pitiful conditions and the status of China. Pitiful in nearly everything that mattered. Poverty, probably the most obvious. In many Chinese communities, 70% lived on less than 500 grams of grain each day. For us Westerners, that's just a little over one pound of grain each day. Protein was a rare treat. With poverty, you get the cousin famine, and that was the stark reality in China by the year 1974. The cities were only slightly better off. That's because the state redirected much of the grain to the urban centers. One foreign student enrolled at Peking University at that time described the school's canteen as something out of a dark novel. Students and staff had to furnish their own bowls, only to be ladled out a slop of tasteless cornmeal mush with a teaspoon of inedible oversalted vegetables. He recalled the rice as grayish and always contaminated with dirt and coal. He was careful when eating it not to chip a tooth. The country's leadership realized the problem and tried to improve conditions. In 1975, the CCP was encouraging modern agricultural techniques and practices. There was even an effort to get away from collective farms to 
towards cell phone farms. But even these efforts were seriously constrained. The CCP, at its core, could not permit many of these measures. Remember, it was all about a state-planned economy. Certain agricultural crops were just not allowed to be grown. And even despite all of these limitations and conditions, China did manage, by some measurements, to economically improve toward the mid-1970s. The constraints on grain production equally applied to livestock production. As a result, China had to import enormous amounts of foodstuffs. Let us not forget France was still involved in its European wars. As the year 1794 ended, the conflict had turned in France's favor once again. The Austrian army was again driven out of southern Holland. England stood aside, encouraged by the fall of Robespierre and the persistent counter-revolution movements in the Vendée and Brittany areas. And its blockade was working. We'll come back to the war, but I want to change subjects here. In the middle of the year 1795, the Assembly, that is the National Assembly, had a problem. It wanted a new constitution, and it wanted political stability. Remember, the 1793 Constitution was adopted, but never implemented. Its suspension was because of the ongoing revolution. The nation's new leaders wanted a constitution true to the rebellion's principles of 1789 and not the 1793 Constitution. It was argued that the 1793 Constitution was a fraud, that it was drafted and adopted by schemers who were guided by terror and tyranny. Therefore, the document was not salvageable. Times had changed, indeed, and fast. Absolute equality, a feature of the, 19, of the 1793 Constitution, was a chimera, an illusion. At best, all a society and its citizens could obtain was civil equality. The new leaders also believed that only property-owning males had the necessary and sufficient interest in maintaining civility order, and peace. These were the two new ideals as the foundation of the new Constitution was discussed. The new Constitution was approved on August 22, 1795. And like its never-implemented predecessor, it also started with a Declaration of Rights, but a starkly different one. No mention of equality at birth or entitlement of social services. The new Constitution contained 22 enumerated rights that were balanced with nine countering duties. Only male taxpayers over the age of 21 were declared citizens 
with voting rights. Deputies to the new legislative body would be indirectly chosen by elected assemblies to which only citizens owning or renting, according to a sliding scale, property that was worth at least 100 to 200 days of labor would be eligible. Elections would be annually. A bicameral legislature was created. And that was a unique development for France. The aim then with the new constitution was balance and checks. The legislature was divided between a lower house, called a Council of 500, and its primary responsibility would be to initiate all legislation. The upper house, or council, would be called the Council of Elders, and it would be comprised of 250 members. These members would all have to be married or widowed and be over the age of 40. That council could only accept or reject proposed legislation that came from the lower house. The executive power of the new government would be vested in five directors, the so-called directory, chosen by the elders from a list presented by the 500. None of these directors or their ministers that they appointed could sit in the legislature. Added to ensure stability of the government, the Constitution was purposely made difficult to change, and any change could take 10 years to complete. Strangely, included with the new Constitution in the public referendum to adopt the same, the Assembly included what was called the Two-Thirds Decree, The referendum vote was scheduled for September 6th, 1795. The two-thirds decree reserved two-thirds of the seat of both houses for former members of the previous assemblies. While the new constitution at the referendum vote received overwhelming support, the two-thirds decree passed, but with a lot less enthusiasm. It was not a popular measure, and it confused many of the voters. The results of the vote were released on September 23rd. The adoption of the two-thirds decree generated riots, if you can believe it. The riots reached a peak on October 4th, with armed violence in and around Paris. The aim of the violence was to prevent the implementation of the new government. At the election for for its legislative members on October 27th, 1795, with the new government supported by the military, marked the end of the citizens taking charge of the revolution, and with it, many of the ideas or ideals of the revolution. On November 1st, 1795, the directory was installed. Its most pressing problem was economic. 
the grain harvest in France of 1795 was not good. Compounding the problems was England's blockade. It hampered the nation's ability to fully import goods that it needed. And by that time, some items were getting scarce. On top of that, the French currency was on the verge of collapse. Surrounding all of that was the massive damage to almost everything that had been inflicted during the Revolution. By early 1796, it was clear the Jacobins had lost their dominance and were losing their popularity. The Republic did not need to play nice with the Jacobins to keep the monarchy away. The Jacobins were really no longer needed. In the spring of 1796, there were purges of Jacobins from posts of authority. By April 1796, it became a crime to advocate for the Jacobin ways. Never more better expressed than with the disreputed 1793 Constitution. Instinctively, the remaining Jacobins turned to the one thing they knew best, revolution. This time, however, there was no longer the mass movement that they had before. In China, particularly by the year 1974, the state of the hospitals and healthcare was sad. In just five years, the number of healthcare workers declined by one third. Relative and proportionally to the nation's population, there were less healthcare workers than 20 years before. Not surprisingly, disease became a problem. In many factories, as much as two-thirds of the workers were too ill to work. Tuberculosis, liver infections, and mental illness became serious problems. Gone were the specialized medical institutions that existed before the Cultural Revolution that focused on these maladies. By 1975, they did not exist anymore. The countryside was even worse. Medical care, even basic type, did not exist. Concerned about these shortfalls and deficiencies, Chairman Mao urged everyday commoners to take short courses to become physicians. Actually, the barefoot doctors, as they were referred, had been around since the late 1960s. Mao Zedong had always looked at educated professionals with disdain. The barefoot doctor concept perfectly fit his disdainful attitude towards skill and training and knowledge of normally educated doctors. But of course, the barefoot doctor idea and the plan was nothing more than a sham. It was quite common those selected for the positions had somehow paid their way into those positions. The Chinese have a term for that, guanxi, the using of favors to advance yourself. It's who you know, not what you know. Anyway, the program was a complete joke. 
Quietly, and probably a lot longer than commonly known at that time, regions of China were prospering. Not because of the state-planned economy, but in spite of it. Thriving black markets had replaced the state apparatus and institutions. For instance, in areas where grain could not grow to meet the area's grain quota, it raised hogs. So, So many hogs that there were surpluses. The surplus was sold, and the receipts used to buy grain to feed the hogs to then meet the area's grain quota. Cottage industries thrived. Local CCP cadre either looked away or participated in it. In other areas of China, they abandoned the farm collectivism concept and apparatus. Instead, they turned farming over to those that wanted to farm or had experienced doing so. The others would seek paying jobs, turned over a portion of their wages to support the farming operations. Bribery was common as well. Paid off CCP cadre would then just leave these communities alone, and the communities would do as they saw fit. Now, the Chinese government was well aware after 17 years of communist rule, that it had not stamped out the desire of many people to revert back to old ways and the old society. I hope it is clear by now that in order for socialism, communism, to be fully successful to achieve its goals, two things must happen. It's a two-step process. Once the transformation has been completed of controlling the means of production, the second step would be needed. The second step was to destroy any remnants of bourgeois thought, symbols, or goals. Only until the second transformation occurred could the communist regime not have to worry about revisionism. As as communist China found out, despite the constant, brutal repression and violence, old habits died hard. Despite her attempts to transform every aspect of an individual's life inside and out, the Cultural Revolution only got outward compliance by many people. People used every deception, lie, empty rhetoric, or slogans to say what they had to say. Outwardly, all citizens worshipped Mao Zedong, but privately, many mocked him, for sure. There were also many that swallowed completely the communist creed and lived their lives accordingly. But there were also many that did not swallow completely the communist creed. Most of those found a way to simultaneously exist between the two extremes and dart in and out of each as circumstances warranted. In the next episode, we learn about the demise of the Jacobins, more about Napoleon Bonaparte and the European wars. In China, I will talk about the dismal state of the educational system, the growing and thriving counterculture, and introduce Mao's new successor. Thank you. 
It has been a pleasure. <laughs>